This week, we're taking issue with the sausage making on Beacon Hill. Still no supplemental budget, leaving migrant families and state workers in the lurch. Plus, Nikki Haley gets a big financial boost from the Koch brothers, and we say sayonara to George Santos. I'm Corey. I'm Matt. And I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment. And this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Taking Issue podcast. I am joined as always by Matt Pritchard and Sue O'Connell. A lot to get to this week. Uh, Matt, you came off the campaign trail and got thrown right into the dumpster fire on Beacon Hill. Um, The supplemental budget fight, you got to see the sausage making up close. What was that like for you as still someone relatively new to Massachusetts? Yeah, well, Sue O'Connell actually (laughs) warned me about this. She's like, we have laws on the books from the 1700s, so you have no clue what you're in for, and she was right. Uh, It was just a fascinating, honestly, as a political reporter to watch how this all started to kind of take shape. I mean, you've got Democrats and Republicans who are each pointing fingers at the the other one uh, for why this is happening, but I think it's it's pretty easy to look at this and go, Democrats, you have a supermajority. You're the ones that couldn't get this done. You had until since September for this to get done. Here we are in December. You're out of formal session now, and now the minority party has a little bit of power. And so, literally, I felt like the Benny Hill music was just playing as we were running around the Capitol talking with all these lawmakers. Democrats sounded like they were super optimistic. We've got a deal. It's finally there. And then Republicans are telling me, not so fast, we can block this and we probably will. And they've done that repeatedly. So it's just been sort of watching the system frustrate itself for a few hours. Yeah, we're taping this on a Friday, so things may develop uh, at at any moment. Or not. Or not. (laughs) That's Uh, right. Sue, as somebody who has been here much longer than than me and Matt have, uh, is is this just par for the course? I know you you said earlier you were trying to figure out if this has ever happened before to this level. Right. You know, I mean, the challenge here, and it's, it's, this continues to happen like they have never and i think the past six sessions hit the budget deadline and to your point they're a super majority the democrats are in charge they're not really disagreeing on major issues here this is really just polishing and fine-tuning things they are more than directionally in agreement so what's the big problem here why can't they get this done and when you ask we asked more healy about it Last week, she said it's part of the process. The voters have just come to accept that this budget process is going to go on like this. And then the other side of this is, you know, this is a failure of the Republican Party in the state because the Democrats have no fear, (laughs) no fear at all that they're going to be challenged by a Republican and they're going to have a actual race that they have to to compete uh, for re-election in. So they do what they want. And the Republicans, in this case, kind of catch the car suddenly where uh, the Democrats have agreed they're, they're going to go ahead and make some changes. And then the Republicans, because it's out of session, it's not a normal session, have more power than they have had during the entire term. Uh, and they just want to muck things up because they don't even know what they want. And that's that's what's astounding to me because, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's an informal session, it just takes one yeah. person to hold yeah, everything essentially, up. Essentially, they can walk in and say there's not a quorum presence, mm-hmm. basically enough people in the room, and immediately the session is mm-hmm. shut off for a day. It's that much, you know, one person can do that. So so with that said, what what's surprising to me, we asked Peter Durant when we had him on at issue, sort of, what do you all want? You actually, in a supermajority, have a little bit of leverage here. What do you guys want? And he mentioned a few items, but are you surprised that the Republicans, 
you know, didn't have their S together enough to say, no. here is what we want in order to get this passed in a timely fashion. Because again, it's not just the emergency no. shelter housing, it's pay raises for, yeah. for state employees. Which have been approved, right? Pre-negotiated. So these, these are pre-negotiated. These are collective bargaining agreements and pe there are people waiting for this money. They're going to get a big lump sum, which is great, except it's the holidays. It'd be nice if you got your pay raise now. And of course, the Republicans want to say, well, we're for that, but we're against this. I mean, this is the disarray of the Republican State Party because they don't have a plan. Like I said, they don't say, okay, this is exactly what they want. we want. I imagine they want to campaign and say, well, Massachusetts residents should get um, housing before these migrant families do. But they've done nothing ahead of that to, to make that happen. And um, the, the $250 million is an additional thing. It's not like it was already built into the budget. It's just, it's frustrating you know, as much fun as I have talking about it, it is incredibly frustrating that uh, the state lawmakers continue to fall down uh, doing their job in a timely me method ma that, that helps people and that the Republican State Party, if they had all just agreed with Charlie Baker, our very popular governor, we'd have more Republicans in, in the State House. And if we had more Republicans in the State House, the Democrats actually might do things more quickly. Matt, you've got an up-close personal chance to, to talk to these lawmakers who are in the thick of this negotiation. Um, do they, or just take us through the roller coaster of the week, because you mentioned there was a lot of optimism. We saw statements put out, yeah. and then all of a sudden here we are still waiting. Well, I've done a couple of stories throughout the week. It started off by talking with Republicans who said that they wanted this all to be kind of parceled out. They wanted what they believe the controversial part of this, which is basically the $250 million in migrant funding that Governor Maura Healey has asked for, taken to the side so that it can be debated and sort of negotiated on the side, and then we'll take all the other stuff, the main supplemental budget, and get that passed, get people paid. Democrats didn't want to do that. They said it was never something that they were considering, and so they bring forward the whole thing, yet again, up to just under $3 billion uh, to the table to try and get it passed. It's really no surprise then that Republicans are saying, well, that's not what we wanted. We said we didn't want that. And so I think Republicans kind of get caught here where, you know, we said we weren't going to go along with this, and so we're not going to go along with this. At the same time, they say they want to be back in formal session so that they can debate it, but then Democrats say, We've already debated all of this. Nothing is new here. So, like I sort of said, I mean, it really does have that sort of carousel of chaos to it where they're just pointing at one another until one finally gives. Well, you know, D.C. and Boston are hundreds and hundreds of miles apart, but it feels like we're next door neighbors. It took the GOP just as long to find a speaker as it appears it'll take Massachusetts to pass a supplemental budget. Um, speaking of Capitol Hill, um, George Santos, we hardly knew you. Uh, he has been expelled from Congress, uh, facing indictments, ethics investigations. He's been called a liar, an embellisher, a cheat. Um, one of the more strange, I guess, episodes that we've ever seen on Capitol Hill. We're so used to lawmakers sort of spinning their resume, spinning their experience. He just straight up lied. Yeah. Uh, got caught multiple times and, I'll give it to him, had the unmitigated gall to say, vote me out. I dare you, man. They did. What do you make of the whole Santos saga? So I think the origins of it are in the failure of the uh, or or the, or local press having fallen apart. Mm. Local newspapers. Mm. There's nothing that George Santos said when he was running that got checked, mm. right? Uh, and that's because the local community newspapers and the local newspapers just aren't there anymore. And then you've got again the Republican Party in New York, <laughs> who basically didn't vet him either, yeah. and he moved forward. I mean, it's it's been interesting to watch 
the House actually come together on something and debate this and decide we're going to vote them out. It's a little troubling on a sort of due diligence and due process front that he hasn't been convicted. Uh, he's the first uh, um, sitting member of Congress to be expelled since the Confederacy uh, that hasn't been uh, found guilty. But it's also to your point to you, Corey, that he wouldn't leave, right? Yeah. So most people would have resigned. Any self-respecting person would have resigned. So he's obviously got something wrong with him. The audacity of his lies is pretty amazing. Remember, these were campaign funds that people donated. Right. So he's basically stealing and doing this money washing. His own colleagues. Yeah. In the, in the GOP. <laughs> it's... But, you know, so they came together. This does, I think, put some of the Republicans in a bind now where... You know, you've got someone else who they're supporting, someone named Donald Trump, who is guilty of far worse crimes or, or accused of far worse crimes and found liable for, for other civil actions, and they're still supporting him. So, I mean, is George Santos really worse than Donald Trump? I don't know. That slim majority gets, gets even slimmer. But this is something that's even popped up on the campaign trail. You know, candidates have been asked, what, sh what should George Santos do? Should the, <laughs> should the Republicans get rid of him? Um, you've been watching this unfold just like we have. Anything stand out to you about this whole saga? I don't know. I mean, it is so bizarre. I mean, may you live in interesting times is what they say, and certainly we are in this case. I mean, 311 members of the House all agreeing to vote you out says something, but to Sue's point, no Nobody in Republican leadership fell into that category. So are they wrestling with that sort of Donald Trump of it all? Uh, is that the political sparring that's happening uh, in the background of all of this? But, you know, I think it was interesting to see the Hail Mary passes that George Santos tried to throw at the very end, saying, I'm not running for re-election after for a very long time, you know, being very saying I'm going to run again and my constituents need me. So he threw that Hail Mary, didn't work. He tried to bring up the fact that he would be the only one expelled who hasn't actually been convicted in a court of law. I think that resonated with some of his colleagues, but it certainly certainly didn't resonate enough, and they felt the need to show him the door. Don't forget the adultery that he's alleging that his co his colleagues uh, are committing and yeah. coming to the floor that's, hungover. That, and that's, and that's what I think I'm curious to see what happens next, because he uh, he intimates that he knows where some bodies quietly. are buried. Yeah. He is so. not going to go. And I hope he's going to be a, a judge on um, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. Or I heard maybe a contestant know. on Dancing with the Stars. I would like that. That's or point. He's not, he's not done. The mass singer, maybe. In this, yeah, in he's going to be with us for the rest yeah, of our in lives. In this American yeah. media <laughs> landscape, <laughs> he is he has captured the zeitgeist, and he is, he is yeah. going to be a I don't want to make it a direct comparison, but he kind of reminds me of a Sean Spicer type, where it's like, you know, He's just this sort of person that everyone was sort of interested in for one moment, and now he just kind of hangs about. We just lurking see him in the bushes as he goes <laughs> goes around the media circuit. All right, so best of luck, George Santos. Um, let's talk about decision twenty twenty four. A few stories, polling, Gavin Newsom, Ron DeSantis. We'll talk about that. Um, but here we are recording this on December 1st, uh, a month after what I think many might consider the rise of, of Nikki Haley. She got a big financial boost from the Koch brothers, which basically says they are out on Ron DeSantis if, if they were ever in. You followed her on the campaign trail. How do you expect this financial boost beyond just the ads and what the money can buy, but how do you expect this to impact her run for the White House and ultimately trying to take down Donald Trump? I mean, I think, I mean, obviously it's a positive for her to try to slim that gap between her and Donald Trump, especially like you said, you know, this Koch family in 2016 back Donald Trump. So to have this reversal, I think it can only help her. But I think her big problem is just that there are too many candidates kind of sprinkled in this race still. And if anybody's undecided, they just, they haven't just fallen in behind 
one person. We haven't seen the Joe Biden in 2020 that the Democrats did where they all kind of filed in line. That hasn't happened yet. So this money is great. The ads, I'm sure, will we'll start to see it climb in the polls. But I think she needs this pack to whittle down so that voters can focus. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I also think this is a huge, huge boom for her. Uh, the money that comes along with this and the ad buy that they've already started in not only New Hampshire and Iowa, but in South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states. Um, and even though I think all the primary voters are usually very engaged, not all of them are engaged to the amount that we are this far out, even though voting starts, you know, in, in just, uh, just over a month in New Hampshire and Iowa, or caucusing in Iowa. Um, people are just going to get to know her now. And if they run the right kind of ads, which I imagine they are, highlighting her in a way that is better than the crew that's running and a, a stark contrast to Donald Trump. You know, if the, I, I haven't seen all the ads yet, but if they can resist the Biden stuff right now and just focus on this is not Donald Trump, I think it's going to help her. But to that point, most of the, and, and we see the ads every day here, you know, here in the Boston area, a lot of them have just been sort of telling telling her story. And and we hear the, the competency tests for, for politicians over a certain age, which we know are, are attacks aimed at both Biden and Trump. But do you think any of these, do, do you think she's going to be running more attack ads? And, and if so, is she attacking Biden or is she attacking Trump? So, of course, the PAC can do whatever it wants right. and it's not supposed to be, right. not, not supposed to be, <laughs> in finger quotes, aligned legally with the campaign. Um, I don't know at this point how the attack ads would help her with Trump because as we've talked about, you know, that you want to, I think any candidate wants to have a stark contrast to Trump without necessarily attacking him. She doesn't need to attack Biden because she's if she win, if she wins the primary, gets there, she's going to be attacking Biden. If you know if you're not voting for Biden now, you're obviously going to vote for yeah. somebody who's a Republican. But I think that it's an opportunity for them to really introduce her to to voters that really uh, may be undecided or may be with a candidate who's not doing well. I, I wouldn't be surprised if DeSantis drops out, or when DeSantis drops out, if a lot of those votes go to her. Let me just say, too, that on the attack ad front of it, her rhetoric towards Donald Trump is starting to ramp up a little bit. At her event, she's now saying, you know, chaos follows him. This is something we didn't hear from her earlier on in the campaign. She really distanced herself from ever trying to criticize him. And we're starting to move into that direction. And so if the pack moves in that direction, maybe we'll see more of that from her on debate stage. But I guess the challenge would be, even though, you know, when, when she accepted the role as UN ambassador, um, Donald Trump hadn't been indicted four times, January 6th hadn't happened yet. Can you still tie her, though, to Donald Trump? You know, how, why, why would you, why would you say all these bad things about him, yet you still accepted a job from him? But she's not saying bad things about him. She's saying bad things about his circumstance, right? So this is sort of saying, look, and I would love to hire you, but it looks like you're tied up with this, this court case. So, you know, I agree with what you're saying. You did a great job before, but you can't, you know, you're going to be too busy. And I think, uh, and the chaos is really no denying the fact that he's Mr. Chaos. Mm -hmm. Trump is President Chaos. Uh, and so she's going to present herself as this ambassador, as this governor, as this 
person who got out at the right spot, you know, mm -hmm. her, I remember when she resigned her position uh, as ambassador, everybody went, oh, that's good timing. What yeah. good yeah, timing yeah. before yeah. anything got on her. So she's, she's in an interesting spot right now. I also think, I mean, she benefited from not being in the West Wing every yeah. single day. I mean, there is that separation, you know, during the administration. You weren't hearing her name every single day the way you were hearing Mark Meadows or someone else that was right in Trump's orbit. So we know DeSantis has attacked her on, on China, uh, but I haven't really seen him attack her anywhere else. Does he now, we, we kept thinking DeSantis has to say something about Trump. He has to say something about Trump to, to, to sort of make his poll numbers go up. Does he now have to sort of fight this on two fronts and spend a lot of time focused on Nikki Haley, given this ad boost and how his campaign seems to sort of be floundering? I, you know, I just, it's just over is for Is there him. no way, there's no I, coming no, back No, I mean, him? it's yeah. it's like, what do you, again, whatever he does is going to be different from what he was doing mm -hmm. that also wasn't working, mm -hmm. and it may be too late. And this, I know we're going to talk about it, but this debate performance that he had when somebody wasn't even running against him, he still can't quite find his footing on it. He's now had a lot of debate experience, and he's still having a hard time. I just don't see a way forward for um DeSantis to get a message that's going to resonate with the voters. I'd just love to hear how some of the people who have already endorsed him, you know, the Kim Reynolds of the world, yes. how they're feeling mm -hmm. at this moment, you know, whether or not now they're going to be just set adrift, you yeah. know, and, and their nomination's already out there. It's probably why Chris Sununu's mm -hmm. held his card so close to the vest. Yeah. Uh, one last thing on Nikki Haley. In 2023, does Coke money matter anymore? Uh, Coke corporation money, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. cocaine. Okay, yeah. uh, but does it does do do, do, ads, do ads still still matter in the sort of social media environment that we live in and, and everything else like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that they'll probably have a full approach, a, a 360 degree approach to how they're advertising. But it's just a huge amount of money um, that she doesn't have and that DeSantis definitely doesn't have. Uh, so I think it's I think it's really. Yeah, I think of a lot of endorsements that you can get, you'd want to cope. Yeah. endorsement. All right, we'll see we'll see what happens. We'll see if, if, if the, the, the Koch brother money versus MAGA actually turns out because what well, Trump has upwards of 40. Yeah 50, listen 40 the, but you know he's also spending his money on his court cases yes. <laughs> you know so he doesn't need a lot of unearned or earned media um, but if you're going to take them on you need you do. So, so you mentioned that quote-unquote debate between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis. It was on Fox News moderated by Sean Hannity and, and this thing went off the rails at time, at times, uh, and a lot of people saying it wasn't worthwhile. But the more I think about it, maybe maybe just remove their, their names from each other. What if at some point in the future, instead of just getting, you know, when we get down to a Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate, that one of the debates is actually focused on how are these parties yeah. different? Because so much of, of a debate can come down to personality clashes and do I like that guy versus this guy? Um, and because I already know where they stand on the policies, but I thought that there, or at least I, I thought that there would be a little bit more of this is what Democrats believe. And I think I think Newsom hit that pretty well. I think DeSantis viewed this more as I need to do whatever I can to help my campaign. This is not about the GOP. But I thought it may be worthwhile to get representatives from both parties, you know, and just say this is how our parties are, view the country and this is how we're different. I, I, wish, I wish that debate on Thursday night had been more of that than just a sort of clash of personality. So this is something that the um, Ed, uh, Edward Kennedy Institute over in Dorchester has, has been doing on a regular basis, is having someone like an Andy Card and a Bernie Sanders come in and have a debate about issues mm. that isn't for the benefit of an election or for the benefit of their own candidacy, but to talk about, well, here 
I'm a Republican, here's what Republicans believe. I'm a Democratic Socialist, here's what we believe. Or here's, here, here's an issue like healthcare that um, what each of our parties believe and what we think is a way forward. I think there's a great value to that. I, you know, I was somewhat optimistic about this debate because I was hoping that's what it would be like. You know, obviously um, having it in the, the, the decks stacked against Newsom just yeah. in the environment of it. Now they're accusing the DeSantis campaign of not following the rules that they were supposed to. But I think there's a future for it. I don't mind it being entertaining. I think that's, no. that's a great idea. You know, have it on Fox, have it on MSNBC, and let's not just have the talking heads, mm -hmm. you know, um, have the pundits come on and talk, but have the people in the party doing the work talk. I think, I think there's a benefit to it. And, you know, I, again, to DeSantis is sort of, Newsom had nothing to lose. So, you know, he's, he was, he was as uh, loose and relaxed as he could possibly be. But, you know, DeSantis just kind of got caught up in not wanting to talk about certain things like COVID, but then wanting to talk about certain things like COVID. Yeah. Uh, and also just um, missing a few opportunities he had with Newsom. I mean, California's obviously a huge state, but also filled with a lot of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And as Florida is often a purple state, uh, the states have a lot in common. So, I mean, I think there was, it was an interesting approach. Well, we certainly got a lot of memes out of it at this point, a lot of gifts of Ron DeSantis facial maneuvers. Uh, I know you said you were kind of in and out. Yeah, I, I got to be honest. I, I didn't like it. Mm. I, I kept cringing and turning it off, and then my curiosity would get the better of me, and I'd turn it back <laughs> or on. Or someone would text you in our little it, ad issue honestly, text group. That's right, exactly. TJ, <laughs> TJ or would text would us. jump me right back into it. I... You know, I I'm see always the behind, so I never know what you right. guys are talking about. Like, oh, I gotta so wait. you just send a random <laughs> gif and we all laugh. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought that there would be benefit to this, and I think there probably is in the long run. Anytime you get two polar opposites in a room to talk to one another, that's the biggest problem we have in this country, is that the polar opposites aren't talking to one another. So I think there's, there's benefit there. But we, a couple weeks back, went to another debate in a similar format at St. Anselm's with uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ro Khanna out of California. And the way it was moderated, the format that it was in, it was really substantive. And it was like, we're not going to let this get off the rails. And we're not going to yell at each other. And we're not going to talk over one another. We're actually going to digest these issues. And, I, and at the end of that, I walked away going, that's the America I think most Americans would like to be seeing in our political world. What I saw last night, as I told on that issue, if you watched it this week, is that it felt like reality television parading around like it was a real presidential debate. And I just, I'm not interested in that. I just, I just think about, um, my, my wife is British, and I, I just think about how in England, they do this every day. Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer standing across the room from each other and just going at it. And, and yeah, sometimes it is political theater, reality TV, but sometimes there are substantive discussions and you can actually see where people stand on the issues. I just think it's, it's sort of the infotainment yeah. kind of spin on When it. you talk about the issues all the time, you're talking about the issues. And that doesn't mean you're not going to take a personal jab at someone or someone's personality is going to overwhelm it. But, I mean, to your wife's point, in Great Britain, they tend to talk about issues more mm -hmm. often and more regularly than just photo ops or press ops. So, yeah. A uh, last thing on this, it appears that Ron DeSantis's political aspirations, at least for this cycle, are, are on the downward slope. Where does this leave Gavin Newsom? Because he, he is somewhat known in democratic circles and, and ac across the country, but do you think he 
helped or hurt his potential chances in 2028, regardless of what happens next year? Oh, I think he helped his chances in this election cycle. If anything happens, I mean, the rumor that's been going around, I think, for months is that Gavin Newsom would step in and replace Joe Biden because the party can do whatever they want. It's turned into a Republican um, uh, speaking point, a talking mm -hmm. point that they're saying everywhere. It's unlikely to happen. He addressed it. Uh, last night saying he was not running, but you know, he definitely looks presidential and uh, I think that's exactly what he wanted to get out of. Well, he had that quote where he said, you know, the one thing that is true of both of us is that neither one of us <laughs> yeah. is going to be our party's nominee in 2024. I'm a native Californian and just came from there mm -hmm. and spent a lot of time covering Gavin Newsom. He's very smooth and he's very slick when he talks. And so, you know, Republicans hate that because they think, as Ron DeSantis said, that that's just a slick politician. Democrats love it because he's really well spoken and he tends to be able to take issues head on. All right, finally, before we go, one more quick topic. We got some new polling this week, uh, which was the inverse of the polling we got a few weeks ago. And this time it appears that Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump a year out from the election, uh, or I guess less than a year out from the election. Uh, Matt, I know you sat down with, with Steve Kornacki mm -hmm. um, because the conversation that we were having was that there wasn't as much of a media response to this round of polling showing President Biden with a, a, a slim lead over former President Trump. I know you asked why that was. What did you make of his answer that, you know, these are maybe some lesser known pollsters. This isn't a CBS, New York Times, ABC, CNN type of poll. And maybe that's why you're not seeing as much media, I guess, attention. I think it's one answer. And I think it makes a little bit of sense. You know, credibility comes to those big outlets that we all know, the Des Moines Register or whatever it might mm. be, that kind of just brings that sort of pomp and circumstance, you know, that you just are like, okay, I, I believe you yeah. when you tell you me that. You see Suffolk, you think, okay. Yeah, okay, record. sure. You know, they've done their homework, no doubt about it. So I, th I think it's a fair answer, but I think sort of where that question can kind of lead you to is a fair an is fair answer as well of that, you know, are we just automatically going to jump on the Donald Trump is beating Joe Biden. Oh my gosh, is this going to be Donald Trump 2.0? You know, maybe that is true. Maybe we're just sort of seeking that headline right off uh, the bat instead of giving credence to another poll that shows the opposite. What did you make of us here? Well, I, again, I, with, with polls, they're just snapshots of yep. what someone is thinking at the moment. It doesn't mean that is how they're going to vote. I always think about a friend of mine who in the 90s uh, won, opened this huge, very expensive, before the expensive gyms were in Boston, uh, four-star, five-star gym that cost a ton of money because he had polled everyone in the neighborhood. He, he, he had a marketing firm go out and ask people, would you go work out and would you pay this amount of money? And the overwhelming number of people said yes. And I said, well, the problem was you didn't ask, are you working out and are you paying this amount of money? And he ended up you know, having to close the facility because it's a big difference. So. I think all the polls are worthy of looking at them and then putting, putting them in sort of a tapestry of, of what they are saying directionally. I mean, Yeah, and I, I think it's like you know, training camp for an NFL season, right? right? Aaron Rodgers is looking great. He's going to be awesome this year. And then the first snap of the first play of the season, you know, tears his ACL. Yeah. So it's just one of those type of things where it's like a lot of things sound good on paper, but when we actually get to voters in the voting booths, a lot can change. All right, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to leave it there, but, but certainly so much more to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Taking Issue. Be sure to join us uh, Sunday morning at 1130 on NBC10 Boston for At Issue. Uh, potentially, Council President Ruth Z. louis is our guest. She says she has the votes. We'll see if that is actually the case. We also are going to ask her about some of what, of her, uh, what her priorities are as the council gets headed to a new session in January. For Sue... 
For Matt, I'm Corey. Thank you so much for listening this week. We'll talk to you later.